welcome to this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Thursday, December 29th edition. It's brought to you here on the morning of Friday, December 30th. Hope you're having a great start to your day. As uh, We're going to take a look at some of the headlines before we check our forecast for Fort Dodge and the northwest Iowa area. Let's take a look at the headlines here for this Thursday, December 29th edition. The headline photo shows Good Samaritan Society, as it's captioned, Manson resident Linda Mack and activities director Cassie Dar recently completed a quilt that Mack had started nearly 20 years ago. All right. A Stitch in Time, Mason City resident finishes four-generation quilt. Also, fire ignites in vacant house, two detained by police. $1,000 reward for information on Christmas murder. That's scary story. But as promised, here is your forecast for today, Friday, and the rest of this weekend. Looks, which looks very nice for Northwest Iowa at the end of December. Uh, you can expect for today, your Friday, a high 32 degrees. Winds from the west up to 7 miles per hour, becoming light and variable. Sunny conditions, a high near 32 degrees for your Friday. Friday night tonight, partly cloudy skies. Winds from the southeast up to 10 miles per hour. A steady temperature around 27. That's the overnight low into tomorrow, Saturday. Mostly cloudy conditions with a high near 38 for your New Year's Eve. Those winds from the southeast gusting as high as 20 miles per hour, bringing with it some warm weather. Again, a high for 38 for Saturday tomorrow. Tomorrow night, expect mostly cloudy conditions, a little around 21 degrees. And for New Year's Day, 2023, mostly cloudy skies, a high near 37. And looking through the rest of the week, uh, going into New Year's week, you can expect on uh, Monday, high 40 degrees, cloudy, then rain likely. And then a chance of rain and snow on Tuesday, high near 36. Wednesday, mostly cloudy, high near 27 but this is Iowa. That is subject to change, as you all here in the northwest Iowa would know. This is Andrew Halp reading you the Fort Dodge Messenger here on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print handicapped. We'll start with our first story. By Kelby Wingert, A Stitch in Time, Manson resident finishes four-generation quilt. Linda Mack has spent most of her life behind a sewing machine from making her own clothes as a teenager to working as a seamstress in a tailor shop in Fort Dodge to quilting blankets for her family. Four years ago, a stroke changed Mack's life forever, and she eventually found a new home at Manson's Good Samaritan Society's Long-Term Care Center. Despite the stroke paralyzing her left arm, Mack still enjoys her favorite pastime. Recently, Mack was visiting with Cassie Dar, the activity director at Good Samaritan Society of Manson, and she mentioned a quilt she had started nearly 20 years ago, but never got around to finishing. The quilt was a collage of four generations of Mack's family, featuring pieces of fabric from clothes worn by her, her mother, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother. My mom and I sewed a lot, Mack said. She said she started sewing at age 10, making clothes for her Barbie dolls. That eventually evolved into Mac sewing clothes for herself. I kind of grew up in a generation where you didn't have to, didn't have a lot, so you had to make do with what you had, she said. Her parents would buy her two new outfits each year from a store, so she had to make her clothes to help fill her closet. Waste not, want not, Mac said. When Dar learned of Mac's unfinished quilt, she offered to help Mac complete it. 
With her good arm, Mack is still able to cut fabric and pin the pieces together. So Dar helped with running it through the sewing machine and putting a backing on the blanket. The finished blanket is small enough for Mac to use as a lap robe, and she's holding it here in the photo. It's got all kinds of beautiful color to it. It's got blue on it uh, in various patterns, uh, kind of that, uh, uh, how would you say, the origami-shaped patterns or whatever you'd call it. Um, but you've got blue on there, you've got purple, you've got kind of turquoise. It's a very nice-looking blanket. you got some red on there, too. The finished blanket is small enough for Mac to use as a lap robe, quote-unquote, and cover her left arm to keep her warm and cozy this winter. As a resident of Manson's Good Samaritan Society, Mac keeps busy with resident activities and crafting in her room. Using scraps of plaid shirts worn by her father, Mac is planning a quilt for her brother. Next, Mac and Dar will be working on the quilt for her brother, as well as a quilted apron for Dar. I'm the activities director, so I'm always messy, covered in glue and baking all the stuff, Dar said. Mac also might try running the sewing machine herself. She's pretty sure if the table can be raised a bit that she can run it with no problems. There's limitations, but there's nothing impossible. We can find a way around it, Dar said. And it shows Cassie Dar, activities director at Good Samaritan Society of Manson, sewing fabric sections while... Resident Linda Mack shows off the quilt the two finished together recently. Talking about that same quilt. All right, moving on now to more front page news here in the Fort Dodge Messenger, Thursday, December 29th edition. Fire ignites in vacant house, two detained by police. The story by Bill Shea. A fire broke out in a vacant Fort Dodge house Wednesday afternoon, and two men who were spotted leaving the scene were detained by police. The situation remained under investigation Wednesday night. No one was injured in the fire at 605 South 14th Street, which was reported at 2.59 p.m. When firefighters arrived, smoke was coming out of the basement and the upper floors of the house, according to Fire Chief Steve Hergenretter. Two hose lines were pulled from a fire truck. The fire was located in the basement and was extinguished. Hergenretter said there was fire damage in the basement and smoke throughout the rest of the house, he said the house was obviously vacant and no utilities hooked up. He said the two men that two men were seen leaving the house at the same at the time the fire was discovered. They were stopped by police a couple of blocks north of the fire scene. The two-story house is owned by Margie Pearl Jones Life Estate, according to online records of the Webster County Assessor's Office. Those records show it was built in 1911. A neighbor said she believed the house has been vacant for 10 to 15 years. Police and firefighters were on the scene for about an hour. And it shows the photo here of the firefighters going into the house, trying to cut open a side door. And then another photo of Fort Dodge police officers searching a man who was detained at the scene of the fire of that vacant house that was in the 600 block of South 14th Street Wednesday afternoon. In our last front page story here, $1,000 reward for information on Christmas murder. Another story by Kelby Winger. Webster County Crime Stoppers is offering a $1,000 reward for information that leads to the arrest of a suspect in a Christmas morning murder. Fort Dodge resident Montreal Dungy, age 46, was shot and killed early Sunday morning in the 1000 block of 10th Avenue Southwest. 
Law enforcement was dispatched to the area around 3.20 a.m. for multiple reports of a man shot. Upon arriving, officers found Dungy unresponsive. He died at the scene. The Fort Dodge Police Department, along with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation and the Webster County Attorney's Office, are continuing to investigate the homicide. Tips can be submitted to Crime Stoppers by calling 515-573-1444 or by texting LEC and the tip to 274637. Moving on now to page 2. There's a photo here from the files, December 2007. It shows former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who was a presidential candidate back then, answering a question from the audience during a campaign stop at the Fort Dodge Museum Opera House. That's been a few years ago. I definitely remember that race. I was a senior in high school when that race was going on. This day in history. This is a segment by the Associated Press. Thursday, December 29th. If you're hearing this on the morning of Friday, just pretend it's yesterday. Um, the 363rd day of 2022. There are two days left in the year. As of the airing of this on the radio, there'd be one day left. Today's highlight. On December 29th, 1845, Texas was admitted as the 28th state. That means they beat Iowa by one year. Think about that. On this date in 1812, during the War of 1812, the American frigate USS Constitution engaged and severely damaged the British frigate HMS Java off Brazil. In 1890, the Wounded Knee Massacre took place in South Dakota, as an estimated 300 Sioux Indians were killed by U.S. troops to, sent to disarm them. In 1940, during World War II, Germany dropped incendiary bombs on London setting off what came to be known as the Second Great Fire of London. In, a, in 1978, during the Gator Bowl, Ohio State University coach Woody Hayes punched Clemson player Charlie Bauman, who'd intercepted an Ohio State pass. Hayes was fired by Ohio State the next day. In 1992, the United States and Russia announced an agreement on Nuclear Arms Reduction Treaty. That's written a little weird, but I'm going to read it again. In 1992, the United States and Russia announced agreement on a nuclear arms reduction treaty. In 2006, word reached the United States of the execution of former Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. Because of the time difference, it was the morning of December 30th in Iraq when the hanging took place. In a statement, President George W. Bush called Saddam's execution an important milestone to Iraq's road to democracy. In 2007, the New England Patriots ended their regular season with a remarkable 16-0 record following a 38-35 comeback victory over the New York Giants. New England became the first NFL team since the 1972 Dolphins to win every game on the schedule. Ten years ago, Maine's same-sex marriage law went into effect, Five years ago, Puerto Rico authorities said nearly half of the power customers in the U.S. territory still lacked electricity, more than three months after Hurricane Maria. And one year ago, more than a year after a vaccine was rolled out, new cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. were soaring to their highest levels on record at over 265,000 per day. The surge was driven largely by the highly contagious Omicron variant. In other news, on page two of the Fort Dodge Messenger, U.S. will require COVID-19 testing for travelers from China. This written by Carla K. Johnson 
AP medical writer. The U.S. announced new COVID-19 testing requirements Wednesday for all travelers from China, joining other nations imposing restrictions because of a surge of infections. The increase in cases across China follows the rollback of the nation's strict antivirus controls. China's zero-COVID policies had kept the country's infection rate low, but fueled public frustration and crushed economic growth. The new U.S. requirements, which start January 5th, apply to travelers regardless of their nationality and vaccination status. In a statement explaining the testing, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention cited the surge in infections and what it said was a lack of adequate and transparent information from China, including genomic sequencing on the viral strains circulating in the country. These data are critical to monitor the case surge effectively and decrease the chance for entry of a novel variant of concern, the CDC said. Some scientists are worried the COVID-19 surge in China could unleash a new coronavirus variant on the world that may or may not be similar to the ones circulating now. That's because every infection is another chance for the virus to mutate. What we want to avoid is having a variant enter the U- into the U.S. and spread like we saw with Delta or Omicron, said Matthew Binnaker, director of clinical virology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. But the CDC's action may be less about stopping a new variant from crossing U.S. borders and more about increasing pressure on China to share more information, said Dr. David Doughty, an infectious disease epidemiologist at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. All right, 15 minutes into the program here or thereabouts. Moving on to news from page three, Ukraine news. French defense chief visits Ukraine and pledges more support. Dateline Kiev, Ukraine. This is an AP story. France's defense minister on Wednesday pledged further military support for Ukraine, insisting his government's backing is unflagging, while efforts are also being made with Moscow to reach an eventual negotiated end to Russia's invasion. Minister for the Armed Forces Sebastian Licornu said support will include French army equipment and a 200 million euro fund that would allow Ukraine to purchase weapons. While France has been less vocal about its military backing for Ukraine than the United States and Britain, the country has sent a steady supply of weapons to Ukraine since Russia invaded on February 24th. France hosted two aid conferences for Ukraine this month, but many in Ukraine remain remain critical of Paris's response to the war because of President Emmanuel Macron's efforts to maintain contact with Russian President Vladimir Putin and seek a negotiated solution. Le Cornu said France was giving military equipment from the French army to the Ukrainian army, but highlighted that this would not weaken France's defense. France could deliver a new air defense system in the future, officials said, without revealing details, though Ukrainian Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov added that France would immediately begin training Ukrainian air officers on how to use it. Le Cornu and Reznikov did not specify which new air defense system France could give Ukraine in the near future, but Le Cornu later mentioned that the MA. MBA anti-missile system developed together with Italy, describing it as the European equivalent of the Patriot air defense system that the U.S. has given Ukraine. 
Unlike the U.S. government, which announced it was giving the patriots before teaching Ukrainians how to use them, France will train Ukrainians first so that it can, or could potentially rather, deliver a new system such as the Mamba SAMP slash T together with Italy once they are ready to use it, Lacornu's office explained to the AP. Reznikov said Ukraine's top priority remains air defense. Anti-missile defense, anti-drone defense, that is the task of protecting the Ukrainian sky. French Crotale air defense systems already are on combat duty, said Reznikov. And accordingly, we agreed that we will increase the capabilities of our air force, he said. Le Cornu arrived a week after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the U.S., Ukraine's chief ally, and amid fighting focused mostly in the country's east, but with neither Moscow nor Kiev, Kiev reporting major gains in recent weeks. After a meeting with Le Cornu, Zelensky expressed gratitude to France on social media for the already provided military assistance aimed at protecting the Ukrainian sky and strengthening the capabilities of the defense forces. Earlier on Wednesday, in his annual speech to Ukraine's parliament, Zelensky urged the European Union to open membership talks with his country after granting it candidate status in June. He also appraised relations with the U.S., saying its decision to send Patriot missiles is a special sign of trust in Ukraine. While both Russia and Ukraine have said they were willing to participate in peace talks, their stated conditions remained far apart. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov reiterated Wednesday that any peace plan must acknowledge four regions of Ukraine that Russia illegally annexed as Russian territory, a demand that Kyiv flatly rejects. Russian forces have pressed their offensive to capture all of eastern Ukraine by concentrating in recent weeks on Bakhmut, a city in Donetsk province. Ukrainian forces were pushing a counteroffensive towards Kremina, a city in neighboring Luhansk province, in hopes of potentially dividing Russia's troops in the east. France has supplied Ukraine with a substantial chunk of its arsenal of Caesar cannons, as well as anti-tank missiles, Crotali air defense missile batteries, and rocket launchers. It is also training some 2,000 Ukrainian troops on French soil. Macron pledged last week to provide a new injection of weapons in early 2023. Western military aid to Ukraine has angered Moscow. On Tuesday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov accused Washington and NATO of fueling the war, that is, fueling the war, with the aim of weakening Russia and warned the conflict could spin out of control. Russia invaded Ukraine 10 months ago, alleging a threat to its security orchestrated by NATO. The war has killed tens of thousands of people and displaced millions so far, with an end nowhere in sight. Russian attacks on power stations and other infrastructure have left millions of Ukrainians without heating and electricity for hours or days at a time. The latest Russian shelling wounded at least eight civilians, including three in Bakhmut, Donetsk Regional Governor Pavlo Kirilenko said. In other news here on page three, judge orders longest prison term so far in Governor Whitmer plot, Dateline Grand Rapids, Michigan. A Delaware trucker, described as an architect of the conspiracy to kidnap Michigan's governor, was sentenced Wednesday to more than 19 years in prison, the longest term yet given to anyone convicted in the plot. Prosecutors had sought a life sentence for Barry Croft, Jr., age 47, 
who was the fourth and final federal defendant to learn his fate. Judge Robert J. Jonker, that last name spelled J-O-N-K-E-R, described him as the idea guy, quote-unquote, behind the plot and called him a very convincing communicator for people who were open to his views. However twisted or irrational it may seem to many of us, it did, not, it did rather resonate to the targeted audience, the judge said. That is, it is important a method of leadership is being put out in the field telling people where to go. Southwest Airlines flight cancellations continue to snowball. In other news here, Dallas, Texas, Dateline, the story is an AP story. Travelers who counted on Southwest Airlines to get them home suffered another wave of canceled flights Wednesday, and pressure grew on the federal government to help customers get reimbursed for unexpected expenses they incurred because of the airline's meltdown. Exhausted Southwest travelers tried finding seats on other airlines or renting cars to get to their destination, but many remained stranded. The airline CEO said it could be next week before the flight schedule returns to normal. Adontis Barber, a 34-year-old jazz pianist from Kansas City, Missouri, had camped out in the city's airport since his Southwest flight was canceled Saturday and wondered if he would ever get to a New Year's gig in Washington, D.C. I give up, he said. I'm starting to feel homeless. By early afternoon on the East Coast, about 90% of all canceled flights Wednesday in the U.S. were on Southwest, according to FlightAware, the FlightAware tracking service. Moving on now to page four. Photo shows Mary Warwick, at least her hand anyway, or a gloved hand. She is the wildlife director for the Houston Humane Society. She is holding a Mexican free-tailed bat as it recovers from last week's freeze on Tuesday in Houston. The freezing temperatures caused the bats to go into hypothermic shock, lose their grip on their habitat, and fall to the ground. Over 1,500 bats were rescued from the Wall Street Bridge and in Perlin since Friday. It's a good thing my Missy doesn't live down there, my kitty cat. <laughs> she would weigh about 50 pounds more. Yeah, all the rodents on the ground. Bats are just a mouse with wings, everyone. So anyway, there's some really caring people out there who go and rescue bats. Those are very caring people. I can't imagine going out to rescue a bat, but whatever. Okay, moving on now. We're going to be doing the in-brief section. Prosecutors open investigation into Representative-elect George Santos. This story's been boiling through the week. Very interesting. Dateline, New York. This is an AP story. U.S. Representative-elect George Santos of New York was under investigation by Long Island prosecutors on Wednesday after revelations surfaced that the now-embattled Republican lied about his heritage, education, and professional pedigree as he campaigned for office. Despite intensifying doubt about his fitness to hold federal office, Santos has shown no signs of stepping aside even as he publicly admitted to a long list of lies. The numerous fabrications and inconsistencies associated with Congressman-elect Santos are nothing short of stunning. That says Nassau or Nassau, I said that wrong, Nassau County District Attorney Auntie Donnelly, a Republican. The residents of Nassau County and other parts of the 3rd District must have an honest and accountable representative in Congress, she said. 
If a crime was committed in this county, we will prosecute it. He is scheduled to be sworn in next Tuesday when the U.S. House reconvenes. If he assumes office, he could face investigations by the House Committee on Ethics and the Justice Department. Vatican says health of retired Pope Benedict XVI worsening. Dateline Vatican City. This is another AP story. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, his health has worsened over the past hours due to advanced age and doctors are constantly monitoring his condition. The Vatican said Wednesday, as Pope Francis appealed to the faithful to pray for his very ill predecessor until the end. Vatican spokesperson Matteo Bruni said Francis went to visit the frail 95-year-old Benedict in the monastery on Vatican grounds where he has lived since retiring in February 2013. Regarding the health condition of the emeritus pope, for whom Pope Francis asked for prayers at the end of his general audience this morning, I can confirm that in the last hours a worsening due to age has happened, Bruni said in a written statement. The situation at the moment remains under control, constantly monitored by doctors, the statement said. At the end of his customary Wednesday audience with the public in a Vatican auditorium, Francis departed from his prepared remarks to say that Benedict is very ill and asked the faithful to pray for the retired pontiff. Paul Pelosi attacks. Suspect enters not guilty plea. Dateline San Francisco, California. Another AP story. The man who allegedly broke into U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home and beat her 82-year-old husband in October pleaded not guilty Wednesday to six charges, including attempted murder, prosecutors said. The suspect, David DePape, or DePape, had planned to kidnap the Speaker, who was in Washington at the time of the attack. When he broke into the couple's San Francisco home on October 28th, authorities said. Instead, the 42-year-old defendant severely beat her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer in an attack that was witnessed by two police officers and shocked the political world. Paul Pelosi was knocked unconscious and woke up in a pool of his own blood. He later underwent surgery to repair a skull fracture and serious injuries to his right arm and hands. He has since appeared in public wearing a hat and a glove that covered his wounds. Earlier this month, a judge ruled that prosecutors had presented enough evidence during a preliminary hearing to move forward. Wednesday's appearance was another arraignment, a procedural move that when the defendant enters a plea on the charges that will be brought to, to trial. DePape is still being held without bail. His state case returns to court February 23rd. The public defender's office declined to comment. A federal case in which DePape has also pleaded not guilty is also ongoing. Mexico draws more asylum seekers despite grisly violence. Dateline Tijuana, Mexico, another AP story here in the brief section. Albert Riviera knows well how dangerous Mexico can be. He sometimes wears a bulletproof vest around the compound of bright yellow buildings that he built into one of the nation's largest migrant shelters. His phone stores more evidence in the form of stomach-churning videos that gangs sent migrants to warn of consequences for disobeying demands. The images include several limbs being thrown into a pile, a decapitated head getting tossed in a barrel of steaming liquid, or a woman squirming while her head is sawed off. But across town from the Agape Mission Mundial Shelter, many migrants are grateful for a chance to settle here. That's where Mexico's asylum office greets foreigners who consider the border city of Tijuana a relatively safe place to live with an abundance of jobs. 
And we are about at the halfway point here in this reading of the Four Dodge Messenger. This is the Thursday, December 29th edition. is brought to you here on the morning of Friday, December 30th. This is Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard here on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader today. My name is Andrew Haupt filling in. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. And we have three to bring you. The first for Irene Sweat. Irene Agnes Sweat, age 99, of Spring Hill, Kansas, passed away Sunday, December 25th, 2022, at home. A celebration of life will be held at a future date during the spring. Condolences may be left at www.brucefuneralhome.com. Irene was born January 12, 1923 to Edward and Elizabeth Jordanson Reed in Fort Dodge, Iowa. She grew up in Iowa and graduated from Otho High School. After high school, Irene attended Drake University and earned a master's degree. She taught in the public school system with elementary and junior high students. Irene married James C. Sweat on April 26, 1946 in Fort Dodge, Iowa. She enjoyed reading, solving crossword puzzles, and traveling. Irene was a member of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of Colville, Iowa. She was involved in several teacher organizations and was a member of Eastern Star. Irene is preceded in death by her parents, husband James, Children Terry, Lynn, Grayson, and Richard Reed Sweat, and siblings Verna, Marlis, Richard, and Merle. Next up, we go to Marvin Gilbert of Webster City. Marvin Gilbert, age 66, of Webster City, died Tuesday, December 27, 2022, at his home. No, no services are scheduled at this time. Foster Funeral and Cremation Center is entrusted with caring for his family. And also, we have Carol M. McElduff of Rockwell City. Graveside services are at 2 p.m. Friday, December 30th at the Rose Hill Cemetery of Rockwell City. The Palmer's Swank Funeralhome.com. Palmer's Swank is in charge of arrangements. We have some other notices to bring you. Eileen Samuelson, her service is at 10.30 a.m. Thursday at Christ Lutheran Church. So that would have been yesterday. We have Howard Leroy Sheely. 11 a.m. Friday at Gunderson Funeral Home. Visitation 10 to 11 a.m. Friday at Gunderson Funeral Home. That's today. From there we go to the Lifersweiler and Seavers Funeral Home. They're at 307 South 12th Street in Fort Dodge. The first notice to bring you is for Wilbert Lewis Jr., age 65. The funeral is Friday, today at 11 a.m., at the Laufersweiler Funeral Home Visitation, Friday one hour prior, so it starts at 10 a.m. at the funeral home. From there we go to Denny Anderson, age 79. Funeral is Saturday at 10.30 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Humboldt. Visitation is Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Laufersweiler Funeral Home in Fort Dodge. Vigil prayer service, 7 p.m., all at funeral home. And also we have Randy Powell, age 62, who passed away. Services are pending for him. From there we go on to some more national news before I bring you into the world of opinions and sports. If they have any opinions today, we'll see if they do. I didn't see any listed, but it doesn't mean they're not there. National Guard checks homes in Buffalo for blizzard victims. Buffalo, New York, Dateline. The AP is the source. 
The National Guard went door-to-door -door in parts of Buffalo on Wednesday to check on people who lost power during the area's deadliest winter storm in decades. And authorities faced the tragic possibility of finding more victims amid melting snow. Already more than 30 deaths have been reported in western New York from the blizzard that raged Friday and Saturday across much of the country, with Buffalo in its crosshairs. Carolyn Eubanks, who relied on an oxygen machine, collapsed after losing electricity at her Buffalo home during a time when emergency workers were unable to respond to calls. Son Antoine Parker told the Buffalo News, She's like, I can go no further. I'm begging her. Mom, just stand up. She fell on my arms and never spoke another word, Parker told the newspaper. Parker and his stepbrother knocked on nearby doors seeking help. They found it when a stranger, David Purdy, answered and helped them carry the 63-year-old Eubanks inside and try in vain to revive her. Purdy and his fiancée sheltered her body until first responders arrived the next day. I'd done it as respectfully as I could, Purdy told the Buffalo News. Timothy Murphy, age 27, died after snow covered a furnace and sent carbon monoxide into his Lockport home, the Niagara County Sheriff's Office said. Monique Alexander, age 52, was found buried in snow after going out in the storm for unclear reasons, her daughter told the Buffalo News. Andell Taylor, 22, died in her car after it got stuck on her way home from work, her family told WSOC-TV. As a deep freeze eased into milder weather Wednesday and the number of lingering outages dwindled, New York National Guard members knocked on doors in Buffalo and its suburbs. We are fearful that there are individuals who may have perished living alone or people who are not doing well, said Erie County Executive Mark Pullencars. The county encompasses Buffalo. One pair of National Guard troops, clipboard in hand, knocked on the door of a home as people nearby tried to dig their way into businesses on a major avenue in Buffalo. 25 Guard teams were making such rounds Wednesday, spokesperson Eric Durr said by phone. He said troops had made some wellness checks previously but went out with a specific list of questions including whether residents had food, water, electricity, or any special health or medication concerns. The idea is to get a sense of what are the needs out there, said Durr, who noted that troops were offering food and water to those needing it. Buffalo Police Commissioner Joseph Graham Maglia said officers from his and other agencies were searching for victims, sometimes using officers' personal snowmobiles, trucks, and other equipment. With the death toll already surpassing that of the area's notorious blizzard of 1977, local officials faced questions about the response to last week's storm. They insisted that they had prepared, but that the weather was extraordinary, even for a region prone to powerful winter storms. The city did everything that it could under historic blizzard conditions, Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown, a Democrat, said at a news conference. And before we go into the sports and opinions, if there are opinions here, Fort Dodge, Wednesday, police logs, stalking, violation of a protective order. Casey Lee Frazier, age 40, of Lehigh preliminary hearing is January 6, 2023. We have stalking, unauthorized use of a GPS. Casey Lee Frazier, again, of Lehigh preliminary hearing, January 6, 2023. Violation of a no contact order. Casey Lee Frazier, age 40, Lehigh, three counts, continued to 180 days. Tyron Jamal Morris, 28, no address given. Trial January 4th, 2023. Violation of probation. That'd be for Martin 
Tzalo Cortez, age 48, of 1316 First Avenue North, revocation hearing, January 4th, 2023. Domestic abuse, assault, first offense, that'd be Martin Lozalo Cortez, age 48, of 1316 First Avenue North, trial January 4th, 2023. Fifth degree theft, Philip Antonio Oxendine, age 34, of Dillon, South Carolina, trial January 25th, 2023. Fifth degree criminal mischief, Philip Antonio Oxendine, age 34, of Dillon, South Carolina, trial January 25th, 2023. Driving under suspension, William Dean Espinoza Jr., age 37, of Webster City. Trial January 25th, 2023. Also, James O'Brien Tracy, age 44, of Ogden, $347.50 fine. No insurance fine for William Dean Espinoza Jr., 37, of Webster City. $433.75 fine. Also, Stephanie Burning, age 29, of 907 South 17th Street. Failure to appear, warrant issued. From there we go to Fort Dodge, Tuesday. One domestic call was reported. Harassment was reported in the 1500 block of 8th Avenue South. Criminal mischief was reported in the 1400 block of 7th Avenue South. Harassment was reported in the 600 block of North 15th Street. A car accident was reported at 2nd Avenue North and North 25th Street. A runaway was reported in the 300 block of Avenue M West. A person with a gun was reported near South 15th Street and 5th Avenue North, and a suspicious person was reported in the 1300 block of 5th Avenue South. Well, I can't find any opinions, so we move on now to the sports section here in the Fort Dodge Messenger. And the photo here at the top shows 1978 Fort Dodge senior high graduate Sam Mosley, who was an all-Big Sky Conference pick for the University of Nevada at Reno. Sam Mosley, a true Fort Dodge legend. This written by Eric Pratt. I'm often asked about the greatest athletes in Fort Dodge City history. I have lived here for 34 years now, and I've been an avid sports fanatic since day one. This is my 23rd season as sports editor at The Messenger, the paper I first joined as a part-timer in the fall of 1994. Needless to say, I've seen a lot of incredible Dodgers and Gales come and go. The list is really too long to even mention specific names and the skills I've witnessed from sheer strength to blinding speed and everything in between bring a smile to my face every time I reminisce. Ranking their accomplishments and abilities would be almost impossible. I often defer to the old school veterans when it comes to the best of debates, though. While my knowledge of Fort Dodge history expands by the day, I've only seen three-plus decades of superstars with my own eyes. My first-hand experience is relatively incomplete. As a result, I'll always turn to a conversation I had with longtime Messenger Sports Editor Bob Brown in our office about 15 years ago on the subject when he said, Without hesitation, Sam Mosley is the best athlete this community has ever produced. Mosley graduated from Fort Dodge Senior High in 1978 after an all-state basketball season with the Dodgers. Iowa didn't, meant, didn't name a Mr. Basketball in those days, but Mosley was a unanimous selection with more all-state votes than any other player. He averaged 20.4 points for a second consecutive year 
and ranked among the state leaders in rebounds. Mosley also recorded a school record 22 dunks in his senior season alone as Fort Dodge Senior High captured the Big 8 championship with an overall record of 14-5. To this day, Mosley still ranks among the top 10 scorers in the Dodger program history, despite being the only athlete on the list who only have less than three full seasons of varsity ball. Mosley's career 19.8 point per game average remains a school record, even 45 years later. Mosley was an all-Big 8 honoree in football as well and he played tight in defensive end. At nearly 6 feet 7 inches tall and close to 200 pounds, Mosley's incredible physical talent reached an almost mythical status in Iowa, in the area. Fort Dodgers will still tell me stories of the incredible performances or monstrous dunks Mosley delivered. After high school, Mosley played basketball at Ellsworth Community College, helping the Panthers reach the NJCAA National Tournament. Mosley's next stop was the University of Nevada in Reno, Nevada, where he became, became a Division I hoop standout. As a junior in 1981 and 82, Mosley led the nation in field goal accuracy at nearly 66% and was also among the country's top volume dunkers. He averaged 10.8 points and 8.6 rebounds for the Wolfpack. His senior year at Nevada was even more impressive. Mosley dominated in the Big Sky Conference, earning all league honors at 15.4 points and 11.2 rebounds per contest as the Wolfpack captured the conference championship in 1983. Mosley's skills on a basketball court lured professional scouts from around the world for obvious reasons, but pro football franchisers were also intrigued by his untapped potential. As a result, Mosley ended up being both an NBA and NFL draft pick in 1983, taken in the fourth round by the Phoenix Suns and the twelfth round by the Seattle Seahawks, who then traded Mosley's rights to Oakland. Mosley played one all-pro season in the Continental Basketball Association for the Wyoming Wildcatters before extending his pro career overseas with stops in France, Belgium, and Spain. Mosley was inducted into the, into the FDSH Athletic Hall of Fame in 1992. A longtime resident of the state of Nevada, the 63-year-old Mosley currently resides in Wisconsin. Many elite athletes have graced the halls of our local schools dating back to the late 19th century. I'll trust Bob Brown and other former coaches and fans who always made it clear. No one rivaled Sam Mosley before him. No one has since, and maybe no one ever will. By Eric Pratt, who is a sports editor at The Messenger. You can contact him via email at sports at messengernews.net or on Twitter at byericpratt. That'd be at B-Y-E-R-I-C-Pratt-P-R-A-T-T. We have on our sports calendar for Friday today, women's basketball, Tritons at Minnesota West, 6 p.m. Men's basketball, Tritons at Minnesota West, 8 p.m. Saturday, December 31st, women's basketball, Tritons versus NDSCS in Worthington, Minnesota. That's at noon. Men's basketball, Saturday, December 31st, Tritons versus Riverland in Worthington, Minnesota. That's at 2 p.m. On Tuesday, January 3rd, we have girls basketball, Gales at Clear Lake at 6 p.m. and boys basketball, Gales at Clear Lake, 7.30 p.m. Wednesday, January 4th, women's basketball, Tritons at Northeast, 5 p.m. Men's basketball, Tritons at Northeast, 7 p.m. Thursday, January 5th, bowling, Dodgers versus Mason City, that's at 3 p.m. Wrestling, Dodgers versus Ankeny Centennial at Waterloo East, or and Waterloo East, that's at 5.30 p.m. 
Boys swimming, Dodgers at Mason City. That's at 5.30 p.m. Wrestling, Gales versus Iowa Falls, Alden. That's at 6 p.m. Girls basketball, Dodgers at Sioux City East. That's at 6.15 p.m. Boys basketball, Dodgers at Sioux City East. That's at 7.45 p.m. Friday, January 6th, girls basketball, Gales at Algona. That's at 6.15 p.m. Girls basketball, Dodgers at Mason City. That's at 6.15 p.m. Boys basketball, Dodgers at Mason City, 7.45 p.m. Also in boys basketball, Gales at Algona. That's at 7.45 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, wrestling, Gales host St. Edmund Duels at 9 a.m. In wrestling, Dodgers are at Ames Invitational. That's at 10 a.m. In women's basketball, Tritons versus Southeastern at 1 p.m. And in men's basketball, Tritons versus Kirkwood at 3 p.m. You are listening to this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. We are in the sports section now. College football, tough as nails. Back to the front page of the sports section. Rags to riches. Iowa native Duggan went from TCU back up to Heisman Trophy runner-up. The story by Stephen Hawkins of the Associated Press. It has been a wild four-year ride for TCU for quarterback Max Duggan. The former Council Bluffs, Lewis Central All-Starter needed unexpected heart surgery before his sophomore year and played most of last season with a broken bone in his foot. He then, then went from losing his starting job going into this season with a new coaching staff to being the Heisman Trophy runner-up, whose 42nd career start will come Saturday in the college football playoff semifinal against Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl. Every time something's gone bad, I've never seen him panic. I've never seen him complain. All-America guard Steve Avila said, He plays so hard. I've never seen a quarterback take hits like him and just get up and walk it off. Both on and off the field. When new coach Sonny Dykes and offensive coordinator Garrett Riley initially chose redshirt freshman Chandler Morris as their starting quarterback, Duggan was disappointed in himself. But he said he wasn't mad at the new coaches and never considered leaving TCU. You get over it pretty quickly, Duggan said, because there's a season to be played. A season that could have turned out much differently for TCU, 12-1 in their record, without Duggan, the fourth-year senior who has taken nearly every snap since coming in on the second half of the opener after Morris sprained his knee. Duggan has thrown for 3,321 yards with 30 touchdowns and four interceptions and run for 404 yards with six more scores. He led three consecutive second-half comeback wins over ranked Big 12 teams in October and in late November avoided a playoff-busting loss to Baylor with two scoring drives at the end of the game while standout receiver Quinton Johnston and leading rusher Kendra Miller were both on the sideline hurt. Down 11 points midway through the fourth quarter to Kansas State in the Big 12 title game, the Frogs got even with an 80-yard drive on which Duggan had 95 yards rushing. He collapsed to his knees in the end zone after his 8-yard touchdown with 1 minute and 51 seconds left in regulation, then had to throw the game-tying two-point conversion. Duggan wept after the overtime loss to K-State, distraught that he wasn't able to give the Horn Frogs a conference title despite his gutsy fourth-quarter comeback. That just kind of motivates everybody to go the extra yard, not only for our teammates, but for him, Johnston said. Johnston said every time the Frogs get in sort of a dark place, he's always the one to come, especially with the offense, kind of be that spark. I think a big part of our success is because of that mentality he has and everybody watching him every single day and watching what he does and how much he cares about his teammates and how much he loves those guys. 
and how he would do anything in the world for them, Dyke said. Duggan graduated from TCU's business school December 17th and has already said he will skip his available extra college season for the NFL draft. Even though he finished second to USC quarterback Caleb Williams in the Heisman Trophy voting, Duggan Award, let me say that again, Duggan won the Davy O'Brien Award. He is the first TCU player to win the quarterback award named after the school's only Heisman Trophy winner in 1938, a national championship season. The Iowa Gatorade Player of the Year and four-star recruit Duggan started 10 games as a true freshman for TCU in 2019. Before the start of the 2020 season, a previously unknown heart issue was discovered during enhanced preseason testing during the pandemic. Two days after a procedure to fix the heart issue, Duggan needed emergency surgery because of a blood clot. The son of a coach didn't miss a game. Everybody believes in Max, linebacker D. Winters said. He's a confident player and he has a lot of maturity to him. Ask any of his teammates and any of the players who go against him, and they all would say the same. It means a lot. I think you need to have self-confidence, but a lot of that self-confidence comes from people around you that their opinions really matter to you, Duggan said. It makes you play a lot more free, a little bit more loose. Badgers end season on a high note. This story out of Phoenix, Arizona. It's an AP story. Wisconsin had a new coach on the sideline. With the interim coach still calling the shots, the Badgers had several new players in key positions, including quarterback. A long, sometimes difficult season came to a conclusion with more adversity and eventually a win. A 17-point lead nearly erased. Wisconsin dug down for one last defensive play to beat Oklahoma State 24-17 in the guaranteed rate bowl on Tuesday night. It ended exactly the way we wanted it to. to. The, we got the win, said Braylon Allen, who ran for 116 yards and scored on a 20-yard touchdown. Luke Fickle, hired away from Cincinnati after a trip to the college football playoff last season, joined the team on the sideline for the bowl game. He wasn't there to run the show, though. All the decisions were left to interim coach Jim Leonhard. The Badgers had everything working in the first half. The offense had balanced the defense stifling while they built a 17-point lead. In the second half, Wisconsin, with a 7-6 record, bogged down on the slippery chase field turf, and the defense started giving up chunk plays as the Cowboys rode their way back. Cedric Dort finally ended Oklahoma State's momentum, intercepting Garrett Rangel's pass with three minutes left, preserving the Badgers' eighth win in their past nine bowl games. This is what I envisioned what this was about from afar, Fickle said. And that's what they've shown me over the last three and a half weeks. They want to be here, and they want to do it together, and they want to do it the right way. The Cowboys lost four of five to close out the regular season and struggled offensively while falling into a 24-7 hole midway through the third quarter. Wrangle had the lone offensive highlight in the first half with a big assist from Stephon Johnson Jr., who broke a couple of tackles to turn a short swing pass into an 84-yard touchdown. We had the one big play, but other than that, we weren't able to sustain anything, Oklahoma State head coach Mike Gundy said. Wrangle led Oklahoma State back. 
throwing for 229 yards and two touchdowns in place of Spencer Sanders, who entered the transfer portal. The freshman improvised on a fourth and goal by shoveling to a pass to Ollie Gordon while in the grasp of a defender to open the fourth quarter and set up Tanner Brown's 24-yard field goal to pull the Cowboys to 24-17. With momentum back on Oklahoma State's side, Rangel tried to make a big play downfield after another Oklahoma State second-half defensive stop. Dort pulled it back to the Badgers by cutting inside John Paul Richardson for what ended up being the game-clinching interception. We came out here with a little bit of reduced roster and new guys were involved. And we had to kind of find our way, Gundy said. Guys competed practice hard for three weeks, had a great week of practice out here, so I was proud of them. And that's about all the time we have for this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Thursday, December 29th edition. is brought to you here on the morning of Friday, December the 30th, if you are listening on the air. Hope you're having a great start to your day. The Mason City Globe Gazette is next up, or should be. We should have had a reader for that. I think we did. So that will be next up. And uh, this is Andrew Howe with you for this episode of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Thank you so much for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening, and straight ahead.